0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're Going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So, my guest today is David Gunkel. David is a repeat guest, having first appeared on the show back in episode 10. David is a professor of communication studies at Northern Illinois University. He is a leading scholar in the philosophy of technology, having written extensively about cyborgification, robot rights, and responsibilities remix cultures, new political structures in the information age, and much, much more. He is the author of several books, including Hacking Cyberspace, The Machine Question, Of Remixology, Gaming the System, and most recently, Robot Rights. So welcome back to the show, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, so we're going to talk about your most recent book, Robot Rights, which is, I believe, out this month from MIT Press. Um, So I think this is, you know, a real zeitgeist book. It captures something of the spirit of our age. Thanks to the rise of AI and social robotics, the idea that our future is going to be one in which we live with and share space with robots has moved from the realm of science fiction to that of everyday fact. More and more people seem to be willing to entertain the notion that robots have a moral status beyond that of mere property, and there is a heated, emerging academic conversation on the topic. Now, your book expertly guides the reader through this emerging literature and develops on it in interesting and novel ways. Indeed, I think the book goes further than this and explores the history of the idea of granting rights to artificial others, which is much deeper than I had previously realised. And It was something that was kind of eye-opening about your your book as it revealed this literature that I wasn't really aware of. Now, I'm sure the book is set to become the focal point for all future arguments about robot rights. And I definitely urge anyone with an interest in the topic to stop what they're doing right now and purchase a, to- a copy. Uh, while they're doing that, though, we're going to have a conversation about some of the key ideas in the book. And I thought I'd start off with uh, an obvious question, and I'm sure you get variants on this all the time, but I want to ask it up front. And the question is, you know, why would you waste your time writing a book about robot rights? surely the whole idea is ridiculous. Robots are just machines. They can't have rights. You may as well talk about giving rights to a toaster or a refrigerator. Why should we take this idea seriously?
1: Yeah, and you're exactly right. I get this question all the time in various forms. And it's a very honest and I think very genuine question because it does seem from the outside to be a bit odd and a bit... uh, sort of unthinkable. In fact, David Levy has said, you know, that the idea of robot rights is virtually unthinkable, meaning not only is it unable to be thought, but that our very mechanisms for thinking make the subject matter very difficult to get our heads around and and to make sense of. And that's precisely the reason why I wanted to ask the question, because I worry when things are declared unthinkable. Um, There's a philosophical worry um, that, you know, says, you know, who says this is unthinkable and why? But there's also a sort of issue of, of political power. You know, when someone says something is unthinkable or declares something as to be a waste of time or not worth the effort, there is an exercise of power that says, you know, I can declare what you can think and what you cannot think. And I think as philosophers and as critical theorists, we've got to challenge any time that this kind of of declaration is made. And so I really just wanted to test the water and see, you know, by pushing back, why is this unthinkable and what um, history is behind that uh, sort of decision making?
0: Yeah, and hopefully over the course of our conversation, we can explain why people should be taking this idea seriously and why it is worth a book, uh, and probably much more than that in the long run. But let's say I'm on board with you. I think we should take this idea seriously. I think we should think the unthinkable and not be afraid to ask questions that push the boundaries. But what kind of question are we really asking? You know, There are two th- initial definitional issues that arise, and they come from the two words used in the title of your book. And the first of those questions is, what is a robot? Is, is it possible to clearly define the kinds of entities to which we are thinking about giving rights, or is that impossible?
1: So, you know, as we do as academics writing books, we create a prospectus, and that gets sent out for reviews. And one of the uh, feedback items from the reviewers was that I should probably define right up front what I mean by robot and what I mean by rights, because those two words are rather nebulous and and somewhat ambiguous uh, in our usage. And so I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And so my editor and I decided that we would insert some definitional content and get on with the rest of the analysis. And I thought, you know, a paragraph or two in the introduction would take care of it, and I'd be done with it. Well, 40 pages later, uh, I had an entire chapter dedicated to trying to define these two terms. And it's because there is a huge range of differences in the way these things are defined by both roboticists and by philosophers and legal theorists. And so Part of what I wanted to do in that first chapter was come up with a way of grappling with the diversity of these terms rather than just settle on one term and say, for the purposes of this book, robot is this, or for the purposes of this book, rights are this. Instead of making a temporary declaration about a definition and operationalizing that definition, I wanted to get a full appreciation for the range of difference that uh, is available in the terminology.
0: So, I mean, can you give us some sense of the range of difference there? I mean, when we talk about robots, what are the challenges, actually, when it comes to defining robots? Because you have a good discussion of this at the outset as, as why it's so problematic to define it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing you note is that when you start to try to nail down a definition, you find that even the people building the systems will say, ask me anything you want, but please don't ask me to define robot because I can't do that. Uh, My definition will be very different. It'll change from context to context. Um, I think the closest we come to some sort of operational definition is the sense, think, act paradigm. But even when we operationalize that way of defining the robot – um, all kinds of things that some people would not consider to be a robot might be a robot, like your smartphone because it has an accelerometer and it can sense change in direction and process that change and then spit out some results so it's possible that your cell phone is a pocket sized uh, robot that you carry around with you, whereas other people would want to say no it 's got to be embodied in a movable type platform and and so what happens is as you begin to explore these things you find out that robot is not a scalar variable, a variable with one value. It's an array, right, Uh, to use computer uh, programming terminology. In other words, it's a variable that can take a number of different values based on the context of usage and uh, what is being talked about at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me to some extent of the old problems with, you know, functionalist definitions of consciousness in, in the philosophy of mind debate that is a thermometer or a thermostat conscious because it meets certain basic definitional criteria for a conscious entity that it, it senses its environment and reacts to it and has some degree of intelligence. So, I- these problems arise in, in other definitional debates as well.
1: Yeah, and so I really what I wanted to do is instead of just staking a claim to one narrow definition and saying, this is how I operationalize this term for the purpose of this study, I recognized that the study had a very broad historical perspective, and that I needed to work with the diversity of definitions if I was going to capture all the data necessary to talk about uh, the complexity of of the problem.
0: I mean, one other thing that you mentioned, which I I think is worth reflecting on, is the effect that science fiction has had on our understanding of robots. Uh, you, You kind of make the point that this is one of those topics where science fiction came first, and that may have. Polluted, distorted, affected in some negative way, our understanding of what a robot is.
1: Yeah, it's a rock and a hard place. Um, I think Ellen Winfield uh, makes this uh, claim in one of his books. I think very well. You know, on the one hand, science fiction prototyped for us a lot of expectations for the technology, which uh, offers. Some good opportunity for bringing along people who are not experts into the conversation. On the other hand, it creates expectations that can never be met, um, that are just wild speculation. And so, on the one hand, we like the science fiction because it gives us a way of exemplifying, illustrating what is being described and, and talked about. But on the other hand, we recognize that there's an incredible limitation there because it sets up expectations that uh, you know in reality are very difficult to ever achieve.
0: Yeah, my my sense, having discussed this topic with other people, is that this is one of the major sources of frustration between people like you and me, essentially philosophers who are interested in technology and technologists themselves, is that they think that when we discuss the idea of robots having some kind of moral status or rights, we are too fixated on hypothetical science fictional models of robots and not on the real bread and butter robots that they actually deal with in the lab.
1: Right. So I, you know, the one caution I make to my students all the time is that one of the assumptions that are that are made by those of us who read science fiction and engage science fiction, is that science fiction is a predictive discourse. It's about the future. But I think Corey Deptoro and Ursula Le Guin and other science fiction writers have been very spot on with this when they say that science fiction is not about predicting the future, it's about diagnosing the present. And that if we see a lot of science fiction right now filled with robots, it's because we are trying to resolve currently challenges and opportunities that are evolving with emerging technology here and now, not a, not in the future. So it's taking current problems and projecting them on the screen of the future to help us understand the present.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is also an extent to which science fiction can operate as a an inspiration for people who want to build these technologies as well. If they, somebody who watched or was influenced by Star Wars as a child might be very interested in creating a C-3PO or 2 d 2 like robot, and that might genuinely function as a focal point for their engineering efforts.
1: Yeah, in fact, Cynthia Brazil explains her innovative work in social robotics as being definitely grounded in and motivated by her desire to build R2-D2, right? This, this experience she had as a child watching Star Wars.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I we should take on board this, this cautionary note about the difficulty of, of defining what a robot is. And, you know, there is maybe some consensus around this sense-think-act paradigm, but it has its limitations. It's probably over-inclusive. We have some sense of the kinds of robots in existence today, the kinds of social robots that are out there and that capture you know, popular media attention. I don't want to get too bogged down in, in the definition of a robot. I want to look at the other definitional question, which is really what a right is. So if we're thinking of granting rights to robots, what exactly are we thinking of granting to them?
1: Yeah, this is a really good question. It's uh, one of the places where I find, especially in conversations with very smart people from all different disciplines, uh, some resistance. And it's because of the fact that rights is a kind of sacred word. Um, Human rights are very important to us. And we protect them and we seek to uh, enhance them and uh, develop uh, political systems that support them. And so, as soon as you mention rights, there is a tendency to think that we are talking about human rights. And human rights are a collection of all kinds of different things, but rights in ge- the general sense, in the generic sense, are much more rudimentary um, in that we can talk about the rights of all kinds of things, and we don't necessarily mean human rights in that conversation. One of the things I do in the book is I try to bring us back to some very basic sort of um, legal theory, the philosophical theory in defining rights. and. I go back to um, Wesley Holfeld in the 1920s, who was an American jurist, who recognized that when people talk about rights, they tend to get very confused. In fact, even in one decision made by a, uh, a judge, you may find a different definition of rights from one sentence to another. And so what Holfeld did is he tried to break up rights or analyze rights into its molecular components. And he says that there are four molecular incidents that describe what we mean by rights. That rights could be powers, privileges, claims, or immunities. And this has become the sort of standard way that both legal theorists and moral philosophers uh, mobilize the term rights and utilize it in uh, both theoretical discourse and in practical discourse. Additionally, there's two different theories of rights that are in conflict when we talk about granting rights to others. Uh, That's the will theory and the interest theory. The will theory is a rather high bar for inclusion, which says that in order for an entity to be granted rights, he or she has to appear before their community and say, I demand the right to free speech. I demand the right to food and water. The bar there is high because obviously it requires that somebody be able to articulate their rights and make an argument for them. The interest theory has a lower bar of inclusion and says that we can extend rights to others based on what we perceive their interests to be. So the will theory generally just covers human beings who are able to articulate their uh, rights in public, whereas the interest theory is applicable to animals, the environment, and other artifacts like robots because we could make an argument on behalf of others for the inclusion of them in um, the community of moral subjects.
0: Yeah, and there's a line in... A- a debate that i participated in last week that i thought was indicative of this will based theory of rights where somebody said you know i'll believe in robot rights when robots argue for them themselves in court uh, so they have to have that capability self consciousness that autonomy to argue for their own rights before their rights are recognized that's the will based theory whereas this interest based theory is much more general application and in fact in law we have already recognized rights for some pretty weird entities or creatures, artificial entities such as corporations, and also famously there's a I think it's a New Zealand based case where they recognize rights for a river. Correct.
1: Right. And so the conflict between the will and the interest theory is, at this point, determined to have been irresolvable and at a stalemate. There were a number of conferences in the last several decades where philosophers and legal theorists have tried to sort this out and decide which one is more uh, primordial. And uh, we've come up with the answer that they're (laughs) equi-primordial. They're they're both viable viable and that um one does not uh, seem to be at least philosophically better than the other.
0: Right. Um I mean you you quote from Leif Weiner's uh, article or you, you discussed it in quite some detail the about the nature of rights which is an updating of of Hulfield's theory of rights and also an investigation about the merits of the will versus the interest theory and I I definitely recommend anyone who's interested in this topic to take a look at that that paper because it uh, explains a lot of the debates, the philosophical debates about rights, quite clearly and in a, in a relatively short piece. The thing that I do want to emphasize here as well is just the, the, these four different incidents of rights, uh, types of rights, the powers, privileges, claims, and immunities. When we talk about robot rights, we could be talking about any one of those things. I suspect we're probably mainly talking about, are we talking about claim rights or maybe immunities? that the robots have from interference by others, or do you think we are also talking about privileges when it comes to robot rights?
1: Yeah, I think we're, we're in the realm of claims and, and immunities, maybe powers. Uh, privileges I think would be a harder uh, case to make. Um, people have tried, but I, I do think you're correct in that. I mean, you know, I just want to point out that if we get rights right. Right from the beginning, then this conversation becomes much more robust and much easier to sort of work through. If we don't define rights and do so in a way that's rather rigorous and uh, precise, then we start to get into territory where the ambiguities begin to play in the conversation and uh, assumptions are made that we're talking about something that uh, isn't necessarily in play. Um, And the conflation of rights with human rights, I think, is one of the ways in which we get into trouble, because if we only assume we're talking about human rights, well then of course robots will never have rights, because they're not, never going to be human. But there may be privileges and immunities or claims or powers that the robot could have that are not the same as the set that belong to human beings, but nevertheless are a right that would need to be respected and uh, taken into account.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that's actually that's a very important point, and I noticed this as well, actually, in in this debate that I participated in last week about recognizing the moral status of artificial intelligences. When people talk about oh, recognize the moral status of an artificial intelligence, people assume that you're equating them to human persons as these kind of full moral agents with responsibilities and duties and rights and entitlements. But they that really may not be the case. It may be a lesser thing. I mean, something that I think is useful is to view. Any recognition of, of legal status, of, of legal personhood, let's say, just to stick with that example, is a recognition that somebody has a bundle of rights and responsibilities. And it's not that you have to accept that entire bundle of rights and responsibilities when you're recognizing the moral or legal status of, a, of an entity. You could be just recognizing a handful or a couple of those rights. It's, you're not equating them to a full, natural human being.
1: Correct. And the bundle is different for different entities, right? I mean, so we have to deal with different moral status based on what bundle of powers, privileges, claims, and immunities belong to that particular entity.
0: I think that's enough by probably way of of clarification initially. Now, your book is organized in, I think, a a nice way. It it identifies four possible positions that somebody can take on this topic of robot rights. So could you maybe explain to people what those four possible positions are?
1: Yeah, so the four possible positions actually come from a very unlikely source, at least unlikely for me, uh, because they come from David Hume. And David Hume is not a philosopher that is one of my go-to philosophers. Uh, I read Hume as an undergraduate, but I think it has been a very long time since I've delved into Hume in any great detail. But Hume, in his moral uh, writings, has a very interesting distinction between the is and the ought. He uh, tries to argue that you cannot derive an ought from an is, or you cannot derive a moral duty from an ontological statement. And there's been a lot of debate in Humean philosophy since that time. But I discovered that there's a real interesting way in which Hume breaks up the assignment of rights that we can utilize to make sense of the literature in robot rights. And so what I did is kind of a, mod- a modal modification of Hume and talk about the assignment of rights to robots in terms of can versus should. And so I have four modalities of rights that sort of organize the book. Uh, the first two modalities derive the ought from the is, um, and the second two modalities uh follow Hume, and uh, have a a distinction between deriving the ought from the is or the can from the should. So in the first uh, modality, it's robots can't have rights, robots shouldn't have rights, which is a negative uh, derivation. In the second modality, it is robots can have rights, robots should have rights, which is a positive derivation. And then the other two modalities uh, are that robots can have rights, but shouldn't, And the fourth and final is robots cannot have rights, but should. So they're all different sort of remixes of the um, Hume is ought distinction and the possibility of derivation or not from uh, the moral status from the ontological status.
0: Yeah, I mean, my way of understanding it was that this was basically like a two by two matrix where you have these four possibilities, possible combinations of, of can and should. And this frames how, how we think about this topic i think we'll probably just proceed through these four modalities in our conversation i have this sense that at the end of the book that you are you want to try and transcend this categorization of the debate to some extent and this is actually a, a recurrent theme in your work anyway because you adopt <coughs> this deconstructive framework where you want to get beyond these binary or traditional categories and distinctions so just as a forewarning to readers i think that's kind of the direction in which we're heading. But let's let's just go through the four possibilities in some reasonable detail. And let's start with that first modality, this notion that robots can't have rights and therefore they shouldn't have rights. And this, to me, is probably the most common view. It's the one that I encounter all the time. It, it harkens back to you know my opening comments about, isn't it ridiculous that robots should have rights? They're machines. They can't possibly have rights. Uh, could you elaborate or explain this modality?
1: Sure. So um, this modality is really grounded in a long-standing theory of how we understand technology. It's called the Instrumental Theory of Technology, and it says that technology are instruments, um, and as a result, they're just tools that are used by human beings, and they have no moral capability of their own. Or um, you know any assignment of rights or responsibilities. That if a tool is used properly, it's to the credit of the human being who uses the tool. If a tool is used improperly for something wrong, it is the culpability of the human being who decided to use the tool in that way. And therefore, you know, as you say, it sounds very reasonable because it's grounded in over two thousand years of, you know, solid sort of uh, philosophy of technology um, in the way that we understand our devices and their role in our social world. It also is grounded in a very common and longstanding moral theory. And that is moral standing is derived from ontological status. This is the the deriving the ought from the is. Uh, I think Luciano Floridi puts it really well when he says that what an entity is, determines how it is. In other words, how we treat something is derived from what we decide it to be, whether it is a person or property, whether it is a thing or another uh, moral and social subject. So both these things create a sort of center of gravity or what I call a default setting uh, for the way that we deal with our technology and its moral status. Uh, The instrumental theory tells us it's just a machine, therefore it's not a social subject or a moral subject. And the moral theory tells us that the ontological understanding of what something is, is determinative of how we treat it or should treat it.
0: Okay, so one of the things that you dwell on in the book is one recent, fairly prominent articulation of this perspective on robots, which is the EPSRC guidelines on responsible robotics. I actually had one of the Co-authors of that set of guidelines on the podcast before Joanna Bryson, who we'll be talking about in more detail no da- later on, no doubt. But um, I, it hadn't struck me when I first read those principles of robotics how much they embody this instrumentalist, tool based view of robots. But maybe you could explain like how they get across this notion that robots are just tools and could never really have have rights as a result. Right.
1: So um, the principles themselves are crafted by a number of collaborators who came together uh, at a a number of different occasions to develop these principles and then evolve them even further. And then uh, the most recent iteration uh, has a number of commentaries that each of them penned individually to sort of fill out and explain even further how the principles apply. And when you start to look at how the principles are articulated, you find the two things I just talked about at play. On the one hand, there is a very strong claim made that we need to and should need to define and decide that robots and AI are just tools. And therefore, there's a very strong instrumentalist undercurrent behind the principles and the way that they're formulated. Additionally, there's a very strong decision that the ontological determination will be the way in which we decide the moral status. In fact, in his commentary, uh, Tony Prescott said that the principles operationalize a number of ontological assumptions that then become the framework for deriving the moral decisions and guidelines that are uh, encoded in the principles. So. I think both in terms of the way they're written and in terms of how the authors of the principles uh, understand their work, both the instrumental theory and the the derivation of ought from is is very much a part of how the principles were formulated and uh, why they do, I think, have a kind of persuasiveness because they speak directly to these traditions that are very well established um, in the philosophical literature.
0: There does seem to me to be something odd about those principles and also that mode of thinking, which is that there's a sense in which the ontological boundaries for robots are fixed. There's no way for them to escape a certain categori- ontological categorization. And, you know, there's no way in which the technology could develop in such a way that they spill out of that ontological categorization. Uh, could Do you agree with that, or could you comment on that idea, perhaps? Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is... Uh... Really, an important point, and it's a
1: point that's made initially by Karl Marx in in, in Das Kapital. Uh, Marx draws a distinction between tool and machine, and he argues that the tool is the device used by the worker to accomplish a task. The machine is not a tool. The machine is a replacement for the worker, and it uses the tool that worker uses to do the same task. And so, Marx already in the 19th century is thinking about a more diverse understanding of technology that allows for a more fine-grained analysis of the range of possibility by dividing the tool from the machine. And I think the principles are really just thinking about technology as tool and forgetting this other possibility that uh, Marx is already developing in the mid-19th century.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, even if you th- think about technology primarily as a tool... It seems obvious to me that you know not all tools are alike. I mean, the assumption is if you say that something is a tool, that we have some kind of control or authority over it, but that's not always the case. I mean, it can reshape or refashion our beliefs and our way of thinking as well, even if it's just a tool. So, uh, I think there are your problems with using the word tool and fixating on the word tool because it assumes a control of humanity that may not actually be there.
1: Right, and it it assumes a kind of uh, instrumentalism that is neutral. I think, as Peter Paul Verbeek has pointed out very uh, eloquently, that tools shape possibility and that a tool is not just neutral when it comes to shaping the acts that we make in the world. It isn't that human beings make a decision to act in the world and the tool becomes the means by which they do so. The tool actually makes various ends possible, and therefore it's not just a neutral instrument. There's more to it.
0: Yeah, and um, so we have these initial criticisms of this instrumentalist view. What are the other problems with this view, and why do you think we should move look beyond it as a, for guidance about the future of, of robots?
1: Yeah. So just to be, um, you know, I I think the difference between tool and machine that Marx articulates is a conceptual uh, point that uh, I I try to develop in the book. But at a much more empirical level, I think there's a problem here um, in terms of making this way of thinking scale to the challenges of the technological devices that are increasingly coming to uh, be a social component in our world, or at least a interactive com- component in our world, and let's just take a really basic example: the electronic e- explosive ordnance, or the explosive ordnance disposal robots that are being used by soldiers um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. These things are tools; they're meant to dispose of bombs. And they're designed in a very tool-like way. They look like tanks. They're not meant to be social robots in any way, shape, or form. They don't talk. Most of them are remote-controlled. They have no autonomy whatsoever. But it turns out that the soldiers who work with these things treat them as a member of the unit. In fact, the unit cohesion that is created by the military unit draws these robots into the unit as another socially significant entity. So soldiers will award these things uh, battlefield honors. They'll give them promotions. They'll even risk their own lives to save the life of the robot. And when the robot is exploded, they ask for the exact same one to be repaired and delivered back to them because that's their robot. I mean, the instrumental theory would tell us this shouldn't happen because these are just tools. But something is going on that is changing our relationship to these objects that needs to be, I think, really dealt with in a way that understands the social situation and circumstance and doesn't just try to dismiss it as saying, well, they're just stupid soldiers and they should know these are tools and they should stop, you know, instrumentalizing, they should stop anthropomorphizing these things and they should just, you know, think in instrumental terms. Um, so I don't think that the instrumental theory has a ability to explain these kinds of phenomena. Also I think there's a cultural issue. I think there's a kind of ethnocentrism at play in the instrumental theory, because this works in a sort of Christian Western European way of thinking. But when you start to look at the way that people in Japan relate to their technology and robots, it's an entirely different picture. And the robot is much more of a social entity uh, than it is a tool. And so I think the instrumental theory assumes a kind of Eurocentric way of thinking about technology that doesn't necessarily apply across the globe um and that if it was applied across the globe especially in the case of the principles which are meant to be global international principles that might be a kind of ethnocentrism that uh, i think we need to at least uh, be aware of um because it doesn't necessarily play well elsewhere in the world
0: yeah and that's one of the recurrent themes of your book actually this kind of eurocentrism and also ultimately anthropocentrism um i don't want to to focus on this particular this first modality for too long but i do actually just want to pick up on that point you made because there's an interesting section in your book where you talk about the work of jennifer robertson so she's a an anthropologist who's done work in japan looking at the way in which japanese culture views robots and she points out that ha- certain cultural features of in japan that means they're much more open to the idea of robots as social others could you maybe explain her thinking on that
1: Yeah, so I really depend on her anthropological work, which I think is really interesting and really well done uh, field work in anthropology, because I have very little experience myself with uh, Japanese culture. But she's lived in Japan and spent years studying how robots are positioned in Japanese culture. And uh, her argument basically is, is that this European view of the robot as tool, as instrument that we can control and utilize, is almost absent in Japanese culture, where the robot has been seen as a much more socially interactive entity that is recognized in various, um, very official ways. Uh, For example, Pero uh, has been recognized as a kind of citizen according to uh japanese tradition and paro's inventor is then named as the father of the robot Um, sorry
0: could you just explain what paro is for people who aren't familiar with yeah
1: sorry uh paro is a little like kind of baby harp seal robot Um, it's uh, it's a very low level uh social robot that is used for therapy with uh, patients suffering from dementia and other forms of cognitive uh disability And uh, it's been around for quite some time and uh, has been very successful in treating patients with dementia. But uh, the Japanese government, the city government where uh, peril was invented, uh, extended to peril a right of citizenship, which for the Japanese was completely normal. They've done this with cartoon characters, they've done this with other kinds of uh, artifacts, and this is something that in the West would seem actually very weird. I mean, when uh, Sophia was granted citizenship or honorary citizenship by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, it was like, how could they do this? This is absolutely crazy and terrible. But in Japan, this is a practice that has been underway for quite some time.
0: Let's move on to the second modality or way of thinking about robot rights, the notion that robots can have rights and therefore should one day maybe have rights. Uh, That's my way of phrasing it. That's not exactly the way you phrase it in the book. Now, this is probably close enough to my own view on this debate, so maybe I could articulate part of it and you can respond to it. So my understanding of this is that in the Western tradition anyway, there are certain properties that an entity must have in order to have a moral or legal status. And there are many properties that are discussed in this debate, but the standard things are the capacity to feel pain, the capacity to have interests. You mentioned earlier on the interest-based theory of rights, so you know, a precondition of that is that you have to have an interest in order to have a, have a right. Uh, the capacity for continuing sense of individual identity, a continuing personhood, or the capacity for rationality and reasons responsiveness. These are all the kinds of properties that are discussed and mentioned as being indicative of or relevant to claims of, of moral status. I mean, the most central one, the most common one, is probably the capacity for sentience to experience pain or pleasure as being a, a fundamental precondition for a recognition of moral or legal status. So the, I think here, is, as I understand it, is that it's technically Possible for robots to have or exemplify those properties. Now, I mean, I have a particular view on how we would know this to be the case, which I won't get into too much. Maybe in response to some of your criticisms, I will. But the idea is that robots could exemplify these properties. They probably don't just yet. The robots that we have at the moment aren't sufficiently sophisticated to exemplify sentience or personhood or rationality, but they're getting there, and one day they will, and when that day arrives, of course, they should be granted rights. Let I me mean, just to illustrate this. You know, one of my favorite TV series is Star Trek: The Next Generation. Was very influential on me when I was growing up. There's a famous episode of that called "The Measure of Man," in which the android Data has to make an, a claim for his rights to be recognized, his rights as a person to be recognized. If anyone's familiar with the show, you know, Data, very sophisticated android, seems to exemplify all the properties that a adult human being would have. So, of course, you should recognize his rights. I mean, it seems nonsensical. So, I mean, this, as I say, this is close enough to my view, but you don't agree with it. So, what what are your problems or issues with this approach to robot rights?
1: Right. So, again, I, I think you, you make a very cogent point and a very important point that has been made by a number of other people. Um, ben Gertzel has made this point. Nick Bostrom has made this point. Rob Sparrow. David Calvary. I mean, all kinds of individuals have said, you know, at at some point in the future, robots might have the capability of experiencing pain and pleasure or may have the capability of reasoning or of having a persistent identity. And at that point, then we'll have to think about this question of robot rights. But until that time, we don't really need to worry about it because everything we have right now before us are just instruments and tools. And therefore, the rights question is off the table. So it becomes a way of kicking the can down the road and saying, you know, yeah, I will grant you that rights will become an issue, but not now. And how far down the road depends who you ask. You know, Kurzweil will tell you 2045 for the singularity, right? Other people have other estimates as to when this might happen. But in my mind, the biggest problem here is that it is a decision not to decide. It is a way of saying, yes, robot rights interesting, but let's not decide that just yet. Let's postpone decision-making. It's sort of like going to an academic uh, meeting and having all the items for decision tabled to the next meeting. So we're constantly tabling the robot rights question until the moment that the robot uh, has or can exhibit the properties that we take as being uh, credible for uh, moral standing. So that's the one problem. The other problem is, is that both the first and the second modality, Uh, derive ought from is. In other words, they um, agree with Floridi that how an entity is treated morally is derivative from its ontological status, uh, defined in the the way that you did by properties uh, that in inside the mechanism, things like pain, sentience, interest, identity, reason, whatever. And I have some problems with the derivation um, of the ought from the is that are a little different than what David Hume has problems with. But the sort of crux of the issue is that a lot of the things that we are trying to uh, use as properties to define moral status uh, create some problems with um, definition. How do you define consciousness? How do you define sentience? Um, There's a wide spectrum of ways of defining these terms, and there is little agreement across the spectrum as to what these things actually are. Um, There are problems that I think are epistemological. Um, It gets into the problem of other minds. How would you know when something is conscious? I mean, statistically, we can come up with a ballpark and say, yeah, it, it exhibits these kinds of behaviors. but Actually, knowing whether something is another conscious entity becomes a difficult epistemological problem because you can't climb into the head of another to get this, the inside story, as Donna Haraway says. Um, so, I have a lot of difficulties with the properties approach to deciding moral status that are really fundamental philosophical questions um, and not so much practical questions because they get at long standing difficulties of resolving. Uh, the derivation of moral status from ontological status.
0: Yeah. So, if I could come back at that to an extent, I agree with you that it's very frustrating the way this mode of thinking constantly kicks the can down, or kicks the the can down the road. It, it, you know, this infinite deferral of the question of robot rights. My suspicion is that a lot of that is just done because it's the intellectually safer thing to do. So nobody wants to be the person who comes out and says, yes, Sophia should have rights and should we should recognize her moral status. But they kind of they think the most defensible intellectual view is that, of course, robots one day could have rights. Maybe that day is not too far away, but everyone feels it's safer intellectually just to kick the can down the road. And that's why you get that infinite deferral strategy. I think that's the wrong strategy to take. And I think we actually need to confront the possibility of robots having moral status much sooner than that, possibly today in fact. That said, the other criticisms that you have, the more fundamental philosophical criticisms, I'm less swayed by those for a few reasons. One is just that the notion that what's happening here is deriving an ought from an is, I'm not sure if that's really what's taking place. I think what's taking place is that we identify certain facts, certain ontological facts as being relevant to moral status. But the association of those properties, facts, with moral status is <coughs> itself a, a normative or ethical inquiry or matter. It's not something that's determined by empirical or ontological inquiry. It's only once we've decided on the properties that it turns into a factual inquiry, if that makes sure. sense. And the other th- issues around terminology and epistemology, well, I mean, you might be familiar with some of my writings on this, is that I, I, think, I think those epistemological issues are unavoidable. And But I also think that we have to approach them or resolve them in a third-party, behavioristic way. So, of course, we can't climb into somebody's head and tell whether they are conscious or sentient or rational. All we ever have to go on is their performances, and the performances should be sufficient for claims of moral status. And I also think, and we'll get to this eventually, but you know, your own views on this tend to be susceptible to similar kinds of concerns around epistemology and and I think terminology. So yeah, I don't know what you would, would say to, to those kinds of criticisms.
1: Right. So I mean, this could take us in a very long detour into moral theory, and I, I won't go there uh, because I think uh, you, you've pointed in, in the direction of, of how that would develop. But let me just say a couple of things uh, by way of preparing a, a response. Um, one is with any properties approach, someone gets to decide which properties count. And that's an exercise of power. As uh, I think uh, Chris Stone has pointed out in uh, Do Trees Have Standing? Anytime you decide a set of properties that include some entities and exclude other entities, there's an act of power that takes place there. And that act of power has been perpetrated historically in ways that have been very exclusive to individuals that we now recognize should have been inside the club of consideranda, but were not. And so I'm worried about the power, I'm worried about the politics of assigning properties and deciding properties, who gets to say which properties count, and what political exercise of power is exercised um, by making those declarations and applying it. With regards to behavioralism, I would agree with you um, that all we have to go on are behaviors that can uh, indicate something that we assume proceeds from some kind of internal capability. The difficulty we get into here is uh, one of the things I think Joanna points out in her work is, you know, you can create systems that are very deceptive, right? You can create a system that gives the behavioralistic evidence of things that we think are intelligent or socially interactive, and yet it could be an empty-headed mechanism like Sophia. And so I think behavioralism is the only metric we got, but I think as a metric, it has some difficulties uh, in terms of its application. And again, uh, needs to be, I think, critically applied and reevaluated in ways that uh, often isn't done. Uh, in the tradition.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I agree with that. I agree there's always an exercise of power when it comes to decisions about who's included within the moral circle or the legal circle and who isn't. Again, I think that that's unavoidable to some extent. There's always going to be an exercise of power and there are better and worse exercises of power. So it's really a question of ensuring that we're open-minded and pluralistic enough and not really narrow-minded when it comes to decisions of inclusion and exclusion. The other issue around behaviorism and deception, again, I agree that that's a serious worry. I have longer views on, on whether and what people mean by deception in this context. I, I'm not sure that there's a clear definition or understanding of what deception means in this instance. I mean, Just briefly to summarize my own view is that if something behaves like it has moral status, then it has moral status, even if it is empty-headed, uh, because I don't think we have any a deeper basis to or sound understanding of the sort of physiological correlates, let's say, of consciousness. And I think behavior behavioral evidence should trump any considerations around functional physiological correlates of consciousness.
1: And, and I would totally agree with you. I, I think you're exactly right on that. And I think this is where, uh, even though we come at it from different angles, I think we're seeing very, very much eye to eye on this. I would just, you know, recall that a lot of this is really grounded in. Where this all begins, um, when Alan Turing writes his groundbreaking paper in the 1950s on machine intelligence, uh, he says you you can't you know define whether a machine is intelligent or not in any way that makes sense. So all we have to go on are behaviors, and so the entire imitation game is a behavioralistic test, right? And the idea of deception is absolutely crucial if we want to use deception in quotation marks, is absolutely crucial to the imitation game. The entity that is being tested by the imitation game has to give evidence of behaviors that are at least approximating a human level, conversational level, whether or not they're even thinking or not thinking, as the case may be. So I, I think this is a really deep-seated question that gets into the very, um, you know, foundational items uh, behind a lot of the efforts that are put into our understanding of machine intelligence and artificial intelligence.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, my views aren't really any major advance over Turing's views when it comes to this. It's just maybe teasing out the consequences or implications of that and getting people to realize that I, I think it's re- behaviorism is really the only game in town when it comes to making judgments. And of course, it's susceptible to manipulation and maybe people will have a tendency to over-ascribe agency or moral status to other entities, and that might be a problem. But I do think fundamentally it's it's the only strategy we have. Now, that said, you, you mentioned Joanna Bryson. Her name has come up a few times. So the third modality that you discuss in your book, the notion that robots can possibly have rights, but they really shouldn't. That is her view. And so you, you have a whole chapter looking at her arguments in a lot of detail. Now, Joanna was a former guest on this show, and she outlined her her position in, in a previous episode, which I'll put up a link to. And in fact, you quote from that episode, I noticed a few times in your book. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you could explain to us what her view is and then we can look at maybe some of the issues or problems with it,
1: yeah, so I think again, her her position is very persuasive, and it's very well argued. She says, you know we need to make a distinction between two different kinds of artifacts, the technological artifact and the sort of legal artifact um, of our of our legal system and the way we assign rights and responsibilities. And she says, you know, basically, a legislature could one day decide to sign into law." the recognition of rights for an artifact. Uh, This is a very much interest-based approach to deciding moral status, that it could be decided by somebody in power that uh, this particular robot should be granted rights. She says, okay, that's possible. That's how law works. Even though that, that is possible, and robots can have rights in this way we should never do that. We should steer away from that and never go down that road. So her argument basically is, even though robots can legally have rights, we should not extend to them rights. I think it's, again, a, a very persuasive position because it recognizes the exigencies of both the legal system and the limitations of the technology.
0: Okay. So so her view is that we could do it, but we shouldn't. But wh- why shouldn't we? Like, what are the risks to human society to our moral community if we bring robots within the moral community?
1: Right. So her argument is really an argument of over-identification, that if we grant these rights or this moral status to these artificial entities, we will endanger um, our own social institutions, our own Uh, perceptions and understanding of human status and human moral and legal standing, um, that we will, in a way, compromise a lot of our uh, values in the process of of making this uh, declaration of extending of rights to robots.
0: So her view is that it will seriously disrupt our moral equilibrium, our current set of Ethical norms that we use to to guide our thinking and our societies that including robots within the moral circle will be a disruption. I mean, this might be an unfair case to make, and obviously you're not Joanna Bryson, so I'm not asking you necessarily to, d- to defend your view. But is there a danger in that mode of thinking? In that you can imagine very similar arguments being made historically about the extension of the moral circle to include humans and possibly animals as well, and yet now we look back on those modes of thinking, those conservative fears about disruption in a negative light.
1: Correct, and uh, this is not necessarily my argument, but it's an argument I heard someone else make recently in response to uh, Joanna's uh, position, and they said, you know, at one point it was argued that extending the right of marriage to homosexuals was going to somehow compromise the sanctity of the vows of marriage for heterosexual couples. And one of the arguments made on the conservative right is that we can't allow for gay marriage because that will somehow diminish the institution of marriage, which is the foundation of Western culture and the foundation of our political structures, etc. Well, you know, gay people married, and it didn't ruin Western culture. Um, we, you know, we realize that now, in retrospect, that excluding them from this possibility was a, a discrimination that uh, was not uh, just and was uh, corrected by legislation that now recognizes the right of homosexual couples to marry. So I think you're right. There is a way in which, if we look historically, this has been utilized in the past to make exclusions that we now recognize as being extremely unjust and, uh, you know, in many cases, immoral.
0: Right. Although, you know, just to be fair to her, I think she would reject that kind of analogy, and she thinks it's very insulting for people to make these comparisons between debates around women's rights or anti-racism or anti-slavery movements and the case for robot rights. She said that pretty much explicitly in the interview that I had with her previously.
1: Right. And I want to say that's not the argument I make in the book. That's an argument I've seen recently from other folks who engage her work, but it is a mode of argument that uh, calls on the history as a way of engaging the challenges that I think she is raising in her own work.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I would say as well that disruptions to our current set of moral norms are always out there. Moral systems are always clashing with each other. There are always new developments through other forms of technology. Uh, one danger with fixating on problems that might arise from the inclusion of robots within our moral circle is that you ignore or, or overlook risks associated with their exclusion. I think actually you you make this a point explicitly in your book, so maybe you could elaborate on on that idea.
1: Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's a balancing act, right? Uh, How much do you worry about the costs and benefits of inclusion versus the costs and benefits of exclusion? My concern is, I think we err too much in the direction of exclusion to leave things out in an effort to protect what is currently valued and known. Whereas if we look historically at how this stuff has developed, the, um, movement in the direction of greater inclusiveness has actually had greater benefit and less risk than
0: that of exclusion. Yeah, and actually perceptions of moral risk are important I think in in this debate and they really do have an influence on how you think about it. One of the key ideas in Bryson's work is that because there's this risk of including robots within our moral or legal circus circle, sorry, not circus, that was a Freud, <laughs> Freudian slip. It's important that we make the non person-like or non-moral status of robots fully transparent to the users. And this is actually an argument that other roboticists have made, so I think Alan Winfield has also made this point, and I believe you quote from him in the book, if I'm recalling correctly. Maybe you could help me out here as to understanding what that really means in practice. What, how, how can we make the non-person-like or non-moral status of robots fully transparent? Is it possible to do this?
1: Yeah. So transparency is one of these things that, in principle, sounds great. I mean, no one's ever going to come out and say, let's have less transparency. I mean, politically speaking, socially speaking, that's just not an argument that is made. We're in favor of transparency. We you know, value transparency. In practice, transparency is really complicated because there are all kinds of things that get in the way of this this ideal of transparency. So as an idealism, sure, it sounds great. As a reality, it runs into all kinds of practical exigencies that uh, become complications for making transparency operational in any way that makes sense or is is workable. Um, I gave the example of the explosive ordnance disposal robots. Those robots are clearly designed to look like tools. They are not made to be social companions. They don't look like Paro. They don't have googly eyes. They don't have the ability to talk. They don't have autonomy. They have none of the things that would be the sort of touchstones of a social robot. And yet, despite the total transparency in their design, transparency in quotation marks, the soldiers treat these things as a social interactive other. And it has nothing to do with the aesthetics, it has nothing to do with the functionality, it has to do with the social circumstance. And transparency doesn't seem to be able to grapple with the fact that things have a social impact that we have recognized for quite some time. Already in the 1990s, with the uh, computer as social actor um, studies done by Byron Reeves and Clifford Nass, you know, we discovered that human beings will anthropomorphize all kinds of things. And that anthropomorphism is not something you can get rid of. It's not a bug to be eliminated. It rather is a testament to our social interaction and the ability to be social creatures. And so transparency is supposed to sort of sanitize the entire process of anthropomorphizing inanimate objects when in fact anthropomorphizing inanimate objects is part of what makes us social and is part of our social behavior. So I don't see that this is very practical in terms of, of how it's actually put into, pra- into play in the design of the robot or the use of the robot.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me the the bomb disposal robots are a good example of the problem because as you point out, they're very non-anthropomorphic in their appearance and likeness and yet people still do treat them as social, relational others. But also, as soon as you're creating any robot that has person-like qualities, let's say like a robot like Sophia, which obviously looks like a human being, it's very difficult for me to imagine how you could make it its non-moral status fully transparent to the user. The suggestion seems to be here that it would just constantly remind you, you know, I am not a human, or I, I do not deserve moral recognition or status. But that would be a very odd thing to imagine, and it would be very odd to imagine that we would avoid including it within the moral circle just because it constantly reminded us of this.
1: Right, and this goes all the way back to Turing again. I mean, this idea in the imitation game that there needs to be some sort of veil that creates ambiguity or simulation or deception, whatever word you want to use here, and that if there was total transparency in the way that these theorists have proposed it, you would never have machine intelligence, at least as Turing uh, has defined it and described it, that there needs to be a kind of uh, simulation that doesn't totally reveal all the secrets. Otherwise you don't get the effect that uh, you have with machine intelligence.
0: Yeah, I mean, so one thing that you talk about a lot in in the book when you're discussing Joanna's views has to do with her use of the, the word slave or the slave metaphor in her work. Now, in her original paper that attracted a lot of attention a number of years ago, she titled it, you know, Why Robots Should Be Slaves. And you find that mode of thinking problematic when it comes to the robot rights debate. Maybe you could explain your problems with it. And I can come back and ask you whether those criticisms are fair afterwards.
1: Sure. Um, and it's I should point out it's not just the criticism of the work that Joanna has done. It's, I think, a bigger picture because you've seen other theorists and other uh, moral thinkers and legal scholars promote similar kinds of uh a, ways of thinking about the robot as a social entity. So in an editorial that Luciano Floridi did not too long ago, he suggested that we don't really need to worry about making new laws for robots. All we have to do is go back to the Roman era and resurrect the Roman slave laws and just rewrite them or repurpose them for robots and we'll have a a body of law that will be very usable and applicable for the current uh, social circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, Pagallo has said something very similar. And uh, a legal scholar, Ashrafian, has argued the same, that uh, the Roman slave laws may be uh, very expedient for designing a legal framework for social robots uh, in the 21st century. And if you look at the history of the word robot, I mean, the original origin of the robot comes from Karl Chapik's um, RUR in the 1920s, and in the Czech language, robota, which is the origin of the word robot, means slave labor. It means serf. It means servant. So Joanna's not inventing something here. She's, you know, applying a name uh, that is very much a part of the etymology of the word, but also its uh, trajectory in both science fiction and in science fact. Now, I have a problem with the use of the word slave Um, not only in Joanna's work but also in Chapik's work and Floridi's editorial across the spectrum because of the historical sedimentation that has occurred with that word. You know, slave is not something that is uh, a, a good word, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a, a negative concept, right? But I think there's more to it um, that, you know, it's not just a metaphor, there, there's, you know, words matter, and that we've got to grapple with the sedimented history that um, has accrued to this word if we're to use it um, in any way uh, in the current situation to describe and discuss robots. I'll just give you a really good sort of practical example. I read Joanna's essay, with my students. And because I teach at a public university, 50 percent of my class is African American. And when they read robots should be slaves, that resonates for them very differently than it does for a lot of my Caucasian students. And when I first became aware of the problem of the word slave in this discourse, it was really through their eyes um, in trying to uh, work with them in making sense of how someone could use this word for robots in the 21st century, knowing the history of the American South and the history of slavery in North America and in South America, for that matter. So th- that's how I come at it. I have a number of ways of, of developing a, a much more sustained and, and philosophically grounded critique, but um, that will take us in a very long detour through the history of slavery and, and the philosophy of, of slavery. But I'll just I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah. if uh, I mean, one thing I would say, as far as I understand it, Joanna has since distanced herself from the use of the word slave and doesn't use it at all in her more recent work. I think she still maybe refers to ideas of of servitude or servant like status, but has not used the slave terminology. So I just, yeah, see, yeah,
1: yeah. No, in fact, you're exactly right. Um, she has not utilized it since that time, and has even, in um, I think a blog post, has uh, you know explicitly called it out and said, I'm, "I'm not going to utilize this term anymore because of." the historical problems that are connected to it. I just want to point out, you know, we we often think that this idea of what I call slavery 2.0 would be a problem for the robot because, you know, the robot might feel something bad by being enslaved by us. I'm not really concerned necessarily with what the robot might feel or not feel in the case of of the imposition of, of bondage on the robot. I'm worried about the kind of culture or society that it creates for us when we create a situation where we have servants um, that are akin to the slaves of the past. As I think Hegel has shown, as the Tocqueville has shown, as Harriet Ann Jacobs, who wrote The Incidents of a Life of a Slave Girl, has shown, slavery has an impact on the worldview of the master and not just on the slave. And that if we're going to create slavery 2.0, we have to recognize that it's going to have a way of shaping our world. And our worldview that may be out of sync with the current values that we hold as democratic citizens,
0: yeah, and this is actually a really good part of the book as well that where you go into some of the history on this, and we won't have time to explore it in depth. There's just one other point that I think it's worth mentioning that you raise in that discussion, which is just that even if you did accept this categorization of robots, it wouldn't completely eliminate the idea that robots have rights and responsibilities because, as you point out, even under Roman law, which people like Floridia are saying we should turn to for guidance, slaves had a legal and moral status.
1: Yeah, correct. And in fact, um, I think you make this point somewhere, if if we look at justice as retributive justice in terms of punishment, the slaves could be punished. And they could only be punished insofar as they had some legal status before the law. And so even if you took this line of argument as the robot as slave, you would still need to build into the legal structure some recognition of the legal status of that entity uh, for the purposes of culpability and punishment.
0: And also that criticism that you had of, of slavery 2.0 about what kind of society it creates for us and this more human-centric approach, that I think offers a nice segue to the last modality that you discussed in the book, The Fourth Possibility, this notion that robots cannot have rights. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't. In fact, they should. And here again, you focus largely on the work of, of one individual, this is Kate Darling from MIT. Now on the face of it, this way of phrasing it, that robots cannot have rights but should, is, seems very odd to me. It, it's like a sentence that doesn't scan or make sense. But you actually seem quite sympathetic to it in the book. So maybe you can explain what Darling's thinking is and why you find it attractive.
1: Right so and you're you're right on on but the face of it it sounds kind of odd or at least counterintuitive but i think what she's getting at is precisely what we're recognizing with the example of the explosive ordnance disposal disposal robots those robots probably can't have rights if we take a properties view of the assignment of moral status to entities but because of the social role they play there is a way that we need to somehow recognize their social status in relationship to the unit and the way that they operate in that unit. And she herself have done, you know, a number of different demonstrations where she's shown that individual human beings, in the case of like a social um, experiment, are unable to do harm to a robot. Now, they know perfectly well the robot is just a toy, like a pleo dinosaur toy. And yet, when you ask them to strike it with a hammer, they don't. And they don't because of the sort of social presence that that entity has in their world. And so I think what Darwin's trying to do is make sense of the fact that artifacts, even though they're dumb artifacts, toasters and toys and explosive ordnance disposal robots still have a kind of social presence that call us to respond to them in ways that are social and interact uh, in, in, in our terms of our interaction. And so I think what I like about her approach is that it's very honest. These are just machines, yet they have social presence. And we need to recognize that social presence and come up with a social solution and even a legal solution, because she argues that they need to have some kind of legal status that um, is able to accommodate that uh, kind of operation.
0: So if I'm understanding you, what what you like about it is that unlike the instrumentalist view or the properties-based view, which essentially positions scientists or philosophers as these powerful social actors who can decide on who gets included within the moral circle or not, this approach takes a a user first or a human first approach, where it looks at how human real human beings, as opposed to ivory tower philosophers or scientists, interact with and understand the presence of robots in their lives, and takes that as the grounding for the normative position. So that that's what's attracting you to this view.
1: Correct, and it, it really goes way back to uh, the you know computer social actor model. Um, from Clifford Nass and Byron Reeves, who recognized this you know, early on and, and did some experimentation with regards to it. So yeah, that is the thing. It actually attracts me, definitely.
0: Even though you're attracted to it, you do ha- think there are some problems with Darlings You in particular. I, I would like to maybe touch on two aspects of your critique of her, her position. One is that you think it may have a weak empirical basis, and also you criticize it for being anthropocentric. So maybe you could elaborate on, on both of those criticisms.
1: Sure. So in terms of its empirical basis, I'm attracted to the position. But one of the frustrations with Darling's work is that she never really does longitudinal studies in a sort of social scientific way that would generate the kind of empirical data that would be necessary to actually prove this hypothesis correct. In other words, most of what she's done are demonstrations. Um, the um study, and people call it a study, Uh, was not really a study. It was just a demonstration at a workshop um, in which a select number of individuals were asked to engage in robot abuse, but it was a very small set of individuals. They were self-selecting. They weren't a random sample. So the empirical data that's generated by the work that she has done is of limited use because it's mainly anecdotal. And as a result of that, I, I worry that we might be missing the whole picture and that uh, the data might be uh, rather biased in terms of the kinds of general, generalizations uh, that are being made from it. Now, I should point out, she never claims that her work is empirically grounded. In fact, she often says, I've not, I've not done full studies on these things. I could, but I haven't. Um, but other people have quoted her demonstrations, called them studies and used her data and generalized from her data in ways that I think are a little bit dangerous um, because it doesn't recognize the limitations of uh, how that data was obtained and what it all means.
0: So then on the, on the other criticism, the concern about anthropocentrism, because this seems to be a big recurring feature of your critiques of, of various positions that people have taken on, on robots.
1: Correct. So her way of approaching the right of the robot or the rights of the robot is really to make it not about the robot, but all about us. And my critique of it it really stems from my critique of Kant's uh, way of dealing with animals. If you look at the work of Immanuel Kant, especially in anthropology and some of the other uh, later moral writings, uh, it's clear that Kant was no animal rights activist. Um, He thought, like Descartes, that animals were just machines, um, didn't feel pain, uh, didn't suffer from mistreatment. Uh, Despite that, he argued, you should not kick your dog or you should not Abuse your domestic animals, and his argument for not doing that is not because the animal is going to be harmed, but because it makes us callous. It creates in human beings a kind of moral insensitivity that could spill over into the way that we treat each other. And so his argument is the argument from indirect duties, right? That's the, the way it's sort of usually formalized. And Darling's argument is also an indirect duties argument. We shouldn't harm the robot not because it's going to feel anything or it's going to, uh, experience detrimental impact, but because of what it does to us. And so when you get down to it, her moral position is still a very anthropocentric way of thinking about the treatment of others. We shouldn't mistreat robots because it harms us. And yeah, it's a solid conscience argument, but I think in the long run, there are some complications and difficulties that, uh, accrue to that way of thinking, not the least of which, as Peter Singer and Tom Regan and others have shown, the Kantian way of thinking about animals really de- you know, devalues the animal's life and the animal's social presence as animal. It is really a, a narcissistic way of thinking about ethics and not at all altruistic.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I would just point out that there are some thinkers who are very much in the Kantian vein, such as Schopenhauer. Who's much more open to the idea of, of of animal rights than than Kant ever was, even though he adopts a very similar epistemological strategy. But let me just kind of move away from that idea because this, I think, leads into your own view on the topic of robot rights. So I mentioned at the start that there's a sense in which you 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 offer these four positions, but you also want to offer an alternative, a position that transcends or gets beyond the binary categories that you've set up through this can-should should framework. And you outlined this in the last chapter. It's maybe unfortunate that we're obviously consigning it to the end of the conversation, and I don't want to rush it, uh, but that's part of the feature of the book as well. It comes as the last chapter in the book. So the criticism or concern with Darling's view is that it doesn't recognize the robot as a moral other. It uh, It derives any status of the robot from a human, from a human actor. And you want us to take a different approach, which involves a more relational understanding of morality and our recognitions of moral status. Maybe you could outline that mode of thinking, the intellectual foundation for it, and then we can talk about how it might actually work and provide guidance on the robot rights debate.
1: Right. And before I do that, let me just say one thing just to sort of set it up so that people understand why it sort of proceeds in this way. Uh, The book, especially the first three-fourths of the book is really a Socratic exercise. What I've done is I've assembled all the experts I could find in the world thinking about robot rights and then sort of queried them the same way that Socrates goes around in Athens and queries all the experts to try to find out what their views are and to figure out if it's cogent and makes sense or not. And so what I do in those first four chapters is sort of step through all this work that people have done to grapple with this question of robot rights, and I've I've tried to call upon the best and, and the brightest and engage their work critically. In effect, at the end of the story, like Socrates, I find that none of them actually are satisfying, that all the positions have things that commend them, but also have things that are problems. And so the last chapter is an attempt to formulate at least the starting point of a different way of thinking about the problem that might advance the conversation and provide some traction on gaining progress on a moral solution. It isn't, I'll say, the moral solution. It is a step in a direction of devising a moral solution um, in the face of the sort of inability uh, that I discover in querying all these experts and and their own positions on this uh, issue. That said, what I do in the last chapter then is look at this is-ought distinction from David Hume and say, well, what happens if we flip the script? What if we don't try to derive the ought from the is, but make ought first and derive the is from the ought? In other words, put moral status before ontological decision making. So, in all the other moral theories that people have utilized, there's been some way in which ontology precedes ethics. And in this alternative that I offer in the final chapter, I want to test the water and say, what if we flip it and we put the moral component first, and make moral philosophy first philosophy, an ontology derivative of morality. Now, I'm not going to take credit for innovating this. This innovation comes from Levinas. I mean, this is what Levinas's whole philosophical project was, was to flip the script on Western moral thinking and put ontology second, and make it subservient to uh, the moral component. And the only innovation I bring to the table, I think, is that I extend Levinas's work in the direction of something that Levinas would never ever think as credible. Uh, Levinas was very humanistic, very anthropocentric. Animals for him were not part of the moral equation um, and machines were totally outside the realm of considerability. But just like the generation before me uh, who began to think about Lebanesean ethics in terms of animals, I'm taking that innovation and pushing it in the direction of robots and AI. So that's the sort of origin of this and the sort of strategy that's being utilized.
0: You've written a couple of papers outlining this methodology before, and obviously it features then in the book in some detail. The central question that you think we should be asking if we take this relational turn, I think that's the language you use to describe it, is the face-taking question, which you know, what does it mean for another to take on a face? Now, that's a somewhat obscure vocabulary. Could you maybe explain what that face-taking question means in practice and how it might apply to a social robot, for example?
1: Yes. Okay, so... Let me first of all say that the relational word is not my word. That's Cockleberg's word, and so Mark and I share a great deal in our sort of moral uh, philosophy. Um, and I think that word was introduced in the vo- vocabulary by Mark's work, and it's something that I, I have used since uh, he and I have been collaborating and working on this uh, this issue uh, in, in conjunction with um, the kind of things that we're writing. Uh, so Levinas is the one who gives us this word, face, and on the surface, it seems, to use a bad pun, rather superficial. But I think that's the power of the face as a philosophical uh, concept. Because when you look at the properties approach to deciding moral status, that's about profundity. That's about the deep-seated internal properties that are grounded in the being of the entity. Therefore, it's an ontological issue. Levinas wants to say, before we get into the profundity, there is an encounter with the alienness of the other who stands before us. And it is something that is superficial insofar as not being important, but superficial insofar as it is another who faces us and presents to us a moral challenge that we have to respond to. And that that response is made in advance of any ontological philosophical work to decide what that thing is that there is a superficial response that is made prior to the profound examination of the ontological foundation of that entity.
0: So what would this mean then when we think about a particular social robot? How, how should we approach it in this Levinasian frame of mind?
1: So this, I think, goes right back to your statement about behavioralism and about behavioralism being the only game in town, because I think Levinas, although he never uses the word behavioralism, would be very much on board with this way of thinking. And that's this idea that when we encounter another social entity, let's say a social robot, we don't really know whether it is thinking, feeling, conscious, but all we can work with are the behaviors it exhibits to us, and as a result of those behaviors, have to make a certain uh, projection or a certain sort of guess as to its status. And so Levinas's point is, our social world is such that we are confronted with things that we're not quite sure that we have a full understanding of, and yet we have to make a response to them. And then we have to make a response based on what behaviors are exhibited in relationship to us. And so I think even though Levinas, I think, would shudder at the word behavioralism, I think Levinas is very much a behavioralist when it comes to his moral position.
0: Yeah, so and as you point out, this means that maybe my view and your view are not massively dissimilar I suppose the one difference is that I tend to take. I, I tend to combine the behaviorist approach with the properties based approach, insofar as I think that properties school of thought has given us some guidance on what is important when it comes to just dis- ascribing moral status to another entity. And then we should just reinterpret a lot of the claims that are made by members of that school of thought in a behaviorist form where we focus on the representations, the face of the other as our epistemological guide to the presence of those properties. Do you have a different view then? I mean, actually, this is a general point about your book, and you're very clear about this, is that you don't see your role as being providing clear normative guidance on when or we should or shouldn't include robots within the moral circle. Um, so yeah, what what separates your view from my view?
1: Right. So let me answer this in in two sort of movements. Uh, The first is, I think we're really very close, even in terms of the the properties uh, situation here. In my thinking, and following Levinas, properties are derived from the decision that is made in the face of the other. In other words, the moral challenge occurs. We decide how to treat that thing based on its behavior. And then we project into it the properties that we think ground that decision. In other words, to follow Zizek, we could say the properties are retroactively presupposited out of the social encounter. And so that it's out of the social encounter that we then formulate the properties that we utilize as a kind of shorthand uh, to make sense of moral decision-making in the future, so that we don't have to every single time reinvent the wheel. We use the properties as a way of, of projecting into a category of entity a kind of um, set of standards that we can utilize again and again as a way of building a shorthand negotiation for dealing with the challenges that others present to us in social encounters. The second thing I want to say is, You're exactly right. Um, I don't look at this work as being a work of normative ethics. I look at it as being a much more fundamental philosophical work having to do with the kind of critical approach to doing uh, moral uh, theory and moral reasoning. And there's a reason for that. I don't have, at this point in time, I think, the right answers to these questions. Um, What I do have Is a set of suspicions and hypotheses that I want to put out there as a way of inviting people to engage in dialogue because I think the solution is going to come, but it's going to come not from me, but from an engagement in a uh, community of thinkers and scholars who will grapple with these questions and evolve a normative position that is uh, greater than the sum of the parts. And so if I shun or you know, sort of pull back from a normative perspective, it's because I look at the book as being the opening salvo in beginning this dialogue that I think has to uh, be taken up not just by me, but by others who can bring different perspectives and ideas to the table and together work on devising a normative solution or at least a set of guidelines that can be utilized uh, for grappling with the opportunities and challenges that are before us.
0: So th- that makes it sound like your position is one that's grounded in intellectual humility and uh, reluctance to dictate particular terms for the debate. You want to set up the conversation. But are you not then guilty of this infinite deferral tactic that you criticize people in the property school for engaging in?
1: Possible. I, um, I hope not. Um, and the I think in terms of actual practicality, I am attempting, I think, if, if I get it right, laying out the terrain. In other words, one of the one of the goals of the book is to map the territory and to say, if we're going to have this conversation, and I think we should, here is the range of things that have to come into play and that we have to grapple with. And so a good amount of the book is just mapping the territory, performing a cost-benefit analysis of all the best and the brightest ideas that are out there, and providing a another way of grappling with these questions that opens some new territory uh, that could point the way forward in the future. Um, But I do want to exercise some intellectual and scholarly humility and say, you know, like Moses, I'm going to point the way to the promised land, I might not be the one to get there.
0: Okay, so I think that's probably a good enough place to leave it. Uh, We'll just wrap up on maybe one last question, which brings us full circle back to the opening of this conversation about whether this was a waste of your time what's your feeling on having written it was this a waste of your time or do you think that there is something really valuable and important and do you urge other people to get involved in this conversation
1: yeah i you know there were days i've got to tell you when i when i would wake up and start working on the manuscript and wonder to myself what the heck did i get into um and what kind of rabbit hole has i have i fallen down uh, because there were moments in which I found myself really lost in the literature and in the arguments and in the the logic of what was being developed, but I think emerging from it, um, I do think there 's a great deal of value here um, for really the two reasons you pointed out at the beginning. one is it really responds to a opportunity and a challenge that confronts us right here right now with the incursion and the proliferation of all kinds of artifacts that are occupying positions in our world that are much more socially engaged than anything in the past that we've ever dealt with. And that both in terms of our social understanding and our legal understanding, we're going to have to come up with a way of grappling with these opportunities and challenges to make sense of them for ourselves and for our children. Additionally. I think there's a historic component to the book where it really does help us reflect on how we have as thinkers and as moral actors made decisions about who is included in the community of moral subjects and who is excluded and what the costs and benefits of those decisions have been in the past and how our history might inform our future and how we might learn from what we've done to what we might do. And so it's from those two perspectives that I really think the book does have value. I hope it has value. And, you know, I I actually am really anxious for people to read it and engage with it and uh, tell me about it. Because for my purposes, this only works when it's dialogue. And if it opens a dialogue, that's the best that could possibly happen.
0: And I think, you know, my view on it is it very much is a a really valuable contribution to the debate. And my sense is that if you feel slightly uncomfortable about the topic that you're writing about, you're probably picking the right topic. <laughs> so anyway, David, I think we've gone for long enough. Uh, hopefully this has been an interesting and entertaining conversation for those of us who've been listening to us. I've certainly enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Um, I'd just like to thank you for for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really fun talking to you.